Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernell-Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Alicia Priest, president of the OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us every Friday. Well, we're joined this morning by our with our first guest here, uh, Democratic Minority Leader Emily Virgin. Thank you so much, Representative Virgin, for uh, visiting with us. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, well, we have several things we want to talk to you about, um, but let's start off with uh, Senate Bill 210, which is also Senate Bill 1779, which is also Senate Bill 12345. Um, what is happening? 1984. <laughs> <We> <laughs> what, um, can you kind of give us a little bit of background on um, this bill having to do with absentee voting? Because Monday, the state Supreme Court said the notary uh, notarization of absentee ballots was not necessary or not legally required and but the legislature has passed something saying that it is yeah so um there is uh there was i should say an 18 year old statute that said anything that has to be notarized under state law can also be signed under penalty of perjury and that counts for a notary. And so what the petitioners asked the Supreme Court to do is essentially just say that the election board has to follow that statute, that Mm -hmm. um, they say there's only one way to get your absentee ballot to count, and that's the notary requirement. But the statute, they had never actually enforced. And so the petitioners just asked them to enforce that statute. And they said that the petitioners were correct, that you didn't have to get your absentee ballot notarized. You could also sign under penalty of perjury, and that would get your absentee ballot counted. Um, So then uh, Republicans in the state legislature came back uh, about 48 hours later and changed that statute and said that that didn't count for absentee ballots. So now, uh, and and that was fast-tracked through the process. It was heard in the House on Wednesday, heard in the Senate on Thursday, and the governor signed it also on Thursday, which is lightning speed for legislation um, for for anybody who watches the process. Right. Quite Um, frankly, it doesn't even give an opportunity for constituents to find out about the bill, read the bill, and to contact their legislators. Right. So there were a few really concerning aspects of this, aside from the bill itself. Um, One was that because the rules have been suspended in the House and the Senate, we don't have our normal timing rules, which means that um, we can we can put brand new language into a bill, which is what happened late Tuesday. We were alerted that Senate Bill 1779 had some new language, and then, as you uh, as you said, then Wednesday it morphed into two other bills because of some procedural problems. Um, but we were trying to you know rally people. Tuesday evening to contact their legislators by Wednesday. Um, And then with the bill number changing, it was even more confusing. 
So, you know, we were told, well, we need to suspend these rules because we have legislation to get done related to coronavirus. But this, you know, really, really was taking advantage of the situation and didn't provide transparency to the public and definitely didn't provide them with much of an opportunity to read the bill and contact their elected representatives. You know, I had pulled up debate um, when you guys were talking about it and, you know, it shows the bill and the title and all of that. And when it said Senate bill 210, it's the pay for success, the pay for success act providing for agency contracts for reimbursement. Like, yeah. What? Yeah. Because that's, that's what Senate bill 210 originally did. That is crazy. Um, So, yeah. And then they put new language in it, but that, the title of the bill didn't show up. Um, and so anybody who tuned in who may not have been particularly familiar with the legislative process thought, Oh, well they're on a different bill right now. Um, so it was, it was really, really disappointing all the way around. So what was up with the, all of the shuffling of the bill numbers and things, because that seemed, I mean, and maybe it just looks so sped up right now, but it just seemed like a lot. I mean, that's shady. Seems, it seems shady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good word to describe it. You know, um, to his credit, uh, Representative Eccles was keeping me updated about what was going on. Just, but um, they they picked Senate Bill seventeen seventy nine originally because it did deal with absentee ballots. Oh, okay, um, and. So, but then on Wednesday, uh, not long before a session started, probably within an hour of session starting, um, they discovered that Senate Bill 1779 had not gone through the required second reading um, for for bills in in the House, oh, okay. and so that's sort of some you know jargon um, for the legislative process. So they switched over to Senate Bill 459. um, And then they figured out, oh, well, Senate Bill 459 is actually still in the Senate. It's not property of the House right now, so we can't take that up either. (laughs) And then, okay, well, then they found Senate Bill 210, which was property of the House. It had gone through the required steps already, but it was definitely not dealing with absentee ballots. Um, so we did challenge the germaneness of, you know, putting this absentee ballot language in, but apparently the rules don't apply right now. Except for the rule of log rolling would. So wouldn't this be addressing two different subjects in one bill? Well, not anymore because they took all of the original language out Uh, of Senate Bill 210 and replaced it with the absentee ballot language. So okay. all of that pay for success language is gone, um, which normally the House does not allow floor substitutes like that. We don't allow shucking a bill and putting in completely different language. But that was one of the rules that was suspended uh, on Monday. Um, okay. And we were told that that was to deal with bills relating to coronavirus, but then it or all suddenly applied to everything. Yeah. And so now what will the requirements be to send in an absentee ballot? So you still uh, for for elections going forward, you'll still have to get your ballot notarized. 
the one um, exception is that for any uh, election that is taking place under uh, an, emer- an emergency order uh, due to coronavirus, that you'll also have another option. And that is to make a photocopy of a state-issued ID, anything that that would count to present at your polling place to show your voter ID, um, you can send in a photocopy of that with your absentee ballot instead of getting it notarized. Well, um, but that sounds yeah, super convenient for the, the copy <laughs> machine that I have in my living room. Right. It was going to say, I mean, everybody has a copy <laughs> machine in their house, so it's very uh. convenient. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole point of this court case was to ensure that people didn't have to leave their house. If right, right. they didn't want to or, or really couldn't or shouldn't. Yeah. Um, and so now this requirement basically still says that they have to leave their house because yeah. I don't know a whole lot of people who have coffee machines. You, in their home. you can come over to my house. We have, we have <laughs> right. one in your living room. <laughs> yep. That's where I keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, and it brings up another, you know, really, really important issue, which is, you don't get copies for free at many right. places. Right. Um, and we actually have a, a statute that says that notaries can't charge to notarize an absentee ballot. And usually, oh. you know, notaries will charge a fee to notarize a document, but they can't do that for an absentee ballot. And that's because it would be an illegal poll tax. Right. And that apparently was not thought of when they put in this photocopy requirement because um, as we all know, you know, it usually costs something to make a copy right. and there isn't anything in this new bill that would prohibit somebody from charging you to make a copy of your voter ID. It also brings up a safety issue of me putting in the mail all of my personal information. Yeah. I didn't right. think of that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That was something else that we Concerned. brought up. Um, and we were told that, well, Voters still have a choice. They can get something notarized if they're worried about their personal information. Um, and that was that's a pretty ridiculous answer because we're trying to um, ensure that people don't have to come into contact with right. others, including right. a notary. Um, and we, we haven't received clarification on exactly what will happen with all of these copies of personal information oh my once gosh, they're yeah. sent in. Um, so we're, we're working on getting some clarification on that, but there was nothing in the bill that addressed what would happen to all of the personal information after it's received. And this is all under the guise of the thousands and thousands of, uh, voter fraud issues that we've had in the state. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. What, I mean, that's the main objection. Voter fraud is running rampant in Oklahoma. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so I actually saw um, an article from the Frontier this morning that was it was written a while ago, but one of their reporters has asked for a report on voter fraud after after basically every election and oh, asked, okay. okay, so how many instances of voter fraud were there? And it's practically non-existent. And that is that's not just in Oklahoma; that's across the country. Yeah. And so we see laws like this passed across the country under the guise of voter fraud, but voter fraud just really doesn't happen. Um, And 
we forget, or I think some people forget, that this is a constitutional right to vote, and we need to make sure that people can access it. Um, but mm-hmm. it seems that the number one priority for other legislators is that we keep our election system as secure as possible. And while election security and preventing voter fraud is, uh, of course, important, um, it's not the only value that we should be looking at when it comes to how people can vote. Um, That access to voting is also very important. Um, And most of the instances of voter fraud take place when um, someone who's, you know, a senior citizen may have voted absentee and they forget mm. and then they go yeah. try to vote at their polling place. Yeah. But that's caught um, because when when they receive your absentee ballot or actually when they send you an absentee ballot, it shows up on the voter roll. And so if you come in and try to vote on the day of, um, then they'll know that you've received an absentee ballot and inquire about that. Mm. Well, switching gears uh, to something more positive... <laughs> Just kidding. We're going to talk about the budget. Yeah. Um, yeah. What? Uh, where are we? Where are we? There's a lot. There's so many moving parts right now. Um, can you kind of give us like big picture? Where are we in the budget process? And, you know, what is your caucus um, looking at right now? Yeah. So the budget has now passed the Senate and the House. And so it's up to the governor at this point whether he wants to sign the entire budget, whether he wants to exercise his power of the line item veto so he can he can sign some portions and veto some other portions of the oh, budget. Okay, and so, I didn't know that. Yeah, then that then that would um, give the legislature an opportunity to override that veto. But I think all of that is up in the air right now. Yeah. Um, the, the governor was was largely I think completely cut out of the budget process between the house and the Senate Mm -hmm. um, because of, you know, some ongoing rifts between legislative Republicans and the governor. (laughs) And yeah. Um, And, and so I don't think that the governor necessarily has been briefed on the budget or um, has approved of it um, until it's coming to his desk. So yeah. I think everything is still up in the air at this point. And how long does um, he have to approve it? Um, I think I think he has um, I think he has five days since we're five legis- uh, I don't know if it's five legislative days or five actual days. Okay, um, but it's but it's sometime soon. Um, he'll he has he has a limited period of time to deal with to deal with any bill that comes to his desk, including the budget. Um, and so um, our our objections with the budget were that in the time of a pandemic, this is not the time to be cutting core services. And, you know, we gave a lot of kudos to the budget chairs for being very creative and coming up with a lot of different sources of revenue to fill this massive budget hole of, Mm -hmm. you know, $1.4 billion. And they got it down to somewhere around 200 million, which is pretty impressive. Um, And and we definitely um, recognize that, but we sort of object to the philosophy of 
this is as good as it can get um, because we we know that there's a better way to build our budget. We know that there are better sources of revenue to be able to just sort of insulate us from a downturn in the oil and gas economy or a downturn in the economy in general. And we've been asking for those things for years and haven't gotten any traction on those. But but we do know that it is possible to um, to, to essentially just be better as a state and support core services. And so um, while we certainly appreciate the efforts of, of legislative Republicans in, in minimizing the cuts, the fact is we're still cutting um, and people are accessing services now more than ever. People who right. probably yep. have never tried to access um, these, these sort of safety net services are now trying to access them. So these conversations, they raise the larger issue of, like, do you think that this will cause a conversation about the structure of our state budget? Like, do you think, I mean, now is, I mean, it's an issue you said you've been raising for years. Like, do you think that this is the tipping point where, like, both sides of the aisle will say, we have to look at how we're funding our government? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, It's always tough to have these large holistic conversations. Mm-hmm. But especially with, with this year's budget scenario and with next year's budget picture maybe not looking any better, yeah. there doesn't seem to be a better time to to address this. I know that, you know, it's tough to ask people to chip in a little bit more, but there are people who are still, you know, getting paid at the same level during coronavirus and I think that they would be willing to to pay a little bit more if it meant that, um, you know, we didn't have to cut mental health or right. um, education or any of these other core services that people really need. Um, but it also brings up um, the the issue of our, our municipalities who are completely dependent upon the sales tax yes. in Oklahoma. We're yeah. we're the only state that that were that that requires cities to only use that source of revenue and at a time like this when people are not buying as much people are not you know the the economy is just is not what it was Mm -hmm. um cities particularly are hurting and we need to give them um access to other sources of revenue but when you give them access to other sources of revenue you take away what what the state has access to and so that means that you really do have to have this holistic conversation about where we want our revenue to come from and what level we want to fund services. So shifting gears again, um, let's talk about policy stuff because as, I mean, just as a a layman watching this week, it seems like policy stuff can get done real fast. Um, Are there, um, are you guys still looking at uh, doing some policy work this year? Yes. So the next uh, couple weeks, I think we'll be hearing a number of policy bills. Um, it remains to be seen how many or what exact policy bills we'll be dealing with. Um, we passed earlier this week um, a bill related to um, nurse anesthetists and their their relationship with their uh, with anesthesiologists. That was a bill that had been in the works for several years and. Yeah parties finally came to an agreement on it. So we went ahead and passed that. But we're trying to come up with a list of bills that are truly time sensitive. Mm 
and that that simply can't wait until the next legislative session because we do have a limited time um, left in this legislative session and we we need to be giving the public enough notice that they can be involved in the process but when you know if you're if you're trying to hear a large number of bills then that means the public probably isn't going to be able to keep up so we're trying to um, advocate for just a limited number of bills that are time sensitive or are directly related to coronavirus and speaking of that we've been pushing um along with a, a broader coalition uh the cost of living adjustment for our retired uh, educators, firefighters, you know, uh, all in this coalition together. What can you tell us about the movement on the COLA bill? Well, I know that it is still the House's number one priority this session. Um, yes. I think that... Is there an House applause member- button that we can put <laughs> now? <laughs> yeah, um, I think that, you know, House members, Republican and Democrats, have made that pretty clear to the Senate that... Yeah. That is our number one priority, but so the difficulty is that House bills that we've passed are now in the Senate, and Mm -hmm. Senate bills that they've passed are now in the House, and so we're negotiating about our own bills that are in the other chamber, Mm -hmm. and we always care more about House bills than Senate bills, (laughs) and the same is true with the Senate and the bills that they originally authored, Um, and so it's sort of, it's a strange situation, um, but... I don't think that we have, you know, received official word from the Senate yet on whether they're going to pick that up. So um, I would encourage folks, if if this is an issue that's important to them, to contact the Senate um, leadership and their own senator to ask them to please hear this bill <clears throat> because, you know, people need it now more than ever. And um, it, it is it is one of those time sensitive issues. Um Unfortunately, part of the way that the budget was funded is that um, some contributions from the state that usually sort of come off the top, we don't have access to this money, um, those contributions were reduced. And so there may be an argument that the pension systems are going to be not as well funded. But Mm. um, the fact of the matter is that taking, taking that money away is not going to should not prevent the ability of the systems to give a cost of living adjustment. But it is concerning going forward that the state reduced um, our contribution to those pension systems. And I'm hopeful that, that we'll be able to, in, in the coming years, to increase that contribution again. Um, because it is those extra contributions on the state's part are one of the reasons why the pension systems are more well-funded now and able to give a COLA because we've made sure to shore up those pensions. Absolutely. And, you know, our retirees are not going to be sticking that, you know, uh, extra money under their mattresses. They're going to be spending it. It's going to spur the economy. It's going to, you know, it's going to help all of us by having our retirees be able to, uh, you know, turn their thermostat above 60 in the winter. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is money that will be directly infused into the economy. 
Well, we want to say thank you again to House Minority Leader Emily Virgin for joining us this morning, and congratulations also on your reelection by acclamation. Oh, thank you. Last thank last you. term, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. So, thank yes, thank, thank you, you so much, and stay safe and take care. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye bye. Those who can't teach, for example. Those who can't sit alone at a desk all day, whose energy demands movement and interaction, teach. Those who can't abide platitudes like kids these days, who take the time to get to know every young person, teach. Those who can't be satisfied with a job or even a career, whose everyday work must be filled with passion, teach. Those who can't look the other way while our schools resegregate, who believe the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, teach. Those who can't stand by while our public institutions are privatized, whose collective conscience sees through the rhetoric of choice, teach. Those who can't ignore the history of organized labor in the U.S., who know that the union makes us strong, teach. Those who can't punch a clock, whose passion can't be confined to eight to four, or even from August through May, teach. Those who can't care only about some children, who are committed to the success of every student, teach. Those who can't avoid conflict, whose acumen can diffuse the most hostile situations, teach. Those who can't be happy climbing the corporate ladder, who will master their craft and stay in the classroom for decades, teach. Those who can't settle for anything less than constant improvement, whose minds are always searching for innovative new methods, teach. Those who can't quit who will continue to educate more students with less money, teach. But please know, those who can't be fooled by political schemes, whose organizing can create a social revolution, teach. And that was Those Who Can't, an original poem by Aaron Baker. And we're joined uh, by Aaron this morning. Aaron, how are you? I'm I'm good under the circumstances. <laughs> good. Um, and you're a teacher, a social studies teacher at Putnam City North High School, correct? That's correct. Yes, I taught at North. It's a special school in my heart. I graduated from Putnam City, the original. There we go. Also known as the best, whatever. Oh, cool it. <laughs> well, um, so we just listened to your poem, Erin, and it's... I love it so much. There are several lines that really resonate with me. Um, One that in particular I enjoy is about uh, working eight to four because that's such a misconception um, and teaching is not an eight to four job at all. Exactly. Especially now. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's from whenever. Yeah. Whenever. It's from when you wake up to To when when you you pass out from exhaustion at the end of the day. Well, Aaron, we wanted to visit with you about um, how you use your creativity to advocate for public schools. Um, there, are, you are not just a poet, but also a writer and a singer. The 
busking teacher. Yes. <laughs> Why? Um, you know, there are so many. There are so many avenues to at, to advocacy. Why do you choose um, creativity in this way? Why do you use the arts to convey those messages? I think uh, number one, it's just it's kind of in my wheelhouse. My mm-hmm. background is in uh, in ministry. I was a youth pastor for ten years. This makes and so, so much sense. Uh, I see. I yeah, really being, see this. Yes. Yeah, being out of the box and um, kind of entertaining, kind of came with the job at that point. Yeah. And um, I saw no reason to to um, to leave that for the first several years. I I kept it sort of in my classroom mm-hmm. with music, teaching uh, U.S. history, those kinds of things. But really, uh, through getting more involved uh, with the OEA is really where um started to think about the the connection of those two and i really like the way that creativity and advocacy together um and so really just started to be uh kind of unashamed um and that's one of the things with teachers especially now with distance learning is uh trying to get over things like well i don't want to be on screen and that kind of thing because at this point we're all Yes. We're all on screen and our voices are everywhere. So, so yeah, about 2016, 17, um, I just started going for it. So I got to go and watch Aaron teach one day. And, uh, and during the class, it was um, a song, it was a poem, and it was, um, I, I don't even remember what the, um, what the lesson was, but the kids were so into it because it was something that they could then relate to. Mm. Do you find adults responding to that in the same way, Erin, where, where people maybe hear something differently or they, or they're more receptive to it if it's delivered in, in a way that's different than expected? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we all know about the good professional development and the bad professional development <laughs> and the ones that we tend to remember are tend to be more entertaining and, and more personal. Absolutely. Are there other types of art that you explore um, outside of, you know, at your advocacy for, for public schools? It's really funny that you would ask that because I've spent the last three weeks. Um, I, I reached this place with distance learning where my experience as a teacher was very paralyzing um, because because of the things that um, I can't do. Yeah. Because we're not physically together. Right. And my, my skill set, my, I guess my heart and my passion is in, in the, in the face to face things. Mm -hmm. So it has been challenging for me. Um, and just trying to find different ways to connect with that passion from home. Mm-hmm. And so what I found about three weeks ago is I just started doing some visual art oh, cool. and I would take each of my students name and draw it on a piece of paper. And so I've been spending hours a day doing that and sending those through the mail. And that's been good for me. Oh, and I've heard that. responses from students and parents that they like it as well. And they're high school students, right? but they still like, they still like someone to draw them a picture. Yeah, because it means that you're thinking about them. And we exactly. know that education, teaching is about those relationships. Right. Yeah, it, it's, this is a time when um, really anything 
to let someone across the distance, to let them know that you like care and spent some time thinking about them. Hmm. So it, I think it means something to them, but also it, it was helped me because if it takes me 20 minutes to do one student's artwork, then I'm literally thinking about that student and the times that we had together in, in three quarters. It's therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. What, um, what would you say to other, um, other OEA members who have these underlying talents, um, and maybe haven't thought about using them in this kind of a way as intertwining them with advocacy, what message would you have for them? Uh, yeah, they're, I mean, they're out there. I'm not, I'm not special. Um, I could name so many who use their gifts and not everyone's gift is, shall we say in front of the camera. For example, um, so, I should never sing. I should sing in front of no one. <laughs> yes. There are those of us, I mean, yes. Yeah. I think back to the walkout, you know, I, I had very little interest in being inside during the walkout because the stage was calling me and, yeah. and marching from Tulsa. But, all, you know, my colleagues were inside doing such important work. And that's, you know, there's creativity there, too, in, yeah. in all of the work that we do. So find your niche. And it's important exactly. to take our creativity and our talents beyond the classroom and into advocacy. Right, right. And like I said, there's there's creativity that can be infused into, into each little part of it. You know, even the very mundane things that we think about phone banking or something like that. You know, everyone can be creative in these things. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. We know that you're busy wrapping up the year, so we appreciate your time and, and for sharing your talents with all of us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. And welcome to the third section of our weekly podcast, Fried Okra. This is Alicia's Morning Announcements. First, let's talk about our next set of check-ins. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had check-ins by zone, and we got a lot of great feedback about what our schools, uh, what our educators need, um, what they were going through, and how we could help. And we have set some things in action uh, about that. And we, in the next two weeks, we will be doing some check-ins again about what do you think it should look like for us to go back in the fall? What safety issues Ooh, be you would need um, mm -hmm. and what what protocols we would need to put in place, what advocacy things we could help you with um, to make sure that you feel safe going back if we have to do rolling um, quarantine again with some virtual, what can we do to help you set up your classroom for success? So those are going to be coming up next. Our delegate assembly is tomorrow. tomorrow. So we're super excited about that, even though it's virtual and we won't be face to face and getting to hug on and see all the people that we just love to get back in contact with every year at Delegate Assembly. So um, one of the things that we have had to cut from the agenda are our OEA awards. And even though we've cut it from the agenda on Delegate Assembly Day, we are planning some spectacular social media posts uh, to celebrate those winners. So starting May 18th, you'll be seeing once a week um, uh, on all of our social media 
our celebration of those people who have gone above and beyond for public education. And so we hope that you are checking out our Facebook, Twitter, what what other kinds of Instagram, Instagram, Pinterest. my face is spaceograms. Yes. Pinterest. All those. Pinterest. Yes. <laughs> we have them all <laughs> and you should be looking at them. Um, and I, I cannot hardly contain my excitement. Oh my gosh. Um, I flapped my hands when I heard the news. Um, Dear Oklahoma has an extra special reader coming up on Monday. And she is a former Norman High School teacher and girls basketball coach. And she is up in the next level. So if you can guess who it is, Sherry Cole is going to be on. So I am so excited about that. She is um, she is an amazing mother, coach, educator, yes, and um, and apparently and human, yes, and and human and a strong woman role model. Yes, uh, I I am just super excited about this, and it's I, it's it's not like I get to meet her or anything, <laughs> but, but you can I, watch her. I feel as though I get to meet and. Um, and be a part of each of those dear videos. I am so. What is she reading? She is going to read if you give a moose a muffin. <laughs> I okay. I'm familiar with you. If you give a mouse a cookie, if, if you, you get a give a cat a cupcake, if you give a pig a pancake. See, I don't. I don't know. I just have the cat and the and the mouse. I didn't know that there was like other woodland creatures involved. If you give a pig a pancake was Kenneth's favorite first book. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if you give a moose a muffin. And, I, and we didn't. I mean, real talk. Whatever, it doesn't matter because Sherry Cole is amazing, right? <laughs> and so, whatever. I'm just. Ex- I'm. I'm excited to hear the book. Yes. And what's going to happen if you give a moose a muffin? I don't even know. <laughs> Shenanigans. Shenanigans will ensue. Oh, I'm sure. I cannot wait. Oh well, thank you for joining us today on Friday, Okra, the Public Education Podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernall Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association, and I'm Alicia Priest, president of the Oklahoma Education Association. We hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcast. And if you have another platform you'd like us to upload to, let us know at friedokrapodcast at gmail.com. We hope you'll join us again next week on Fried Okra. And until then, keep fighting the good fight for public education.